Where's my signs, Miles? He texted me and said he was going to run a little bit late because making my fan club signs took longer than they thought. And then he came in without any signs. So I'm thinking he wasn't telling me the truth. But either way, it's all right. I'm my own fan club. I'm president, vice president. I can never be evicted or kicked out of my own fan club. So it's kind of nice, actually. No matter what anybody else thinks of me, I always think I'm great. So... <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to, I titled this message, I don't title most of my messages when I preach, I, my style when I preached, I guess if I had a style, but anyway, my style when I preached was expository, and I just went verse by verse through a book until we were done. I didn't care how long it took, it wasn't on anybody's timetable, if it was two years to get through the book of Genesis, which I think it was actually longer than that when I looked at the beginning date and ending date, didn't bother me. I don't know if it bothered anybody else. And I didn't title most of them because I was just going. But in Bible college, when I originally did this, and I've changed it many times since, I just never changed the title. I titled it Code of Conduct because you lost five points if you didn't have a title. And Dr. Comfort didn't seem like he cared what the title was. So I just put this title on there, and I got my five points for my message outline in that particular class. And I've left it that way, but it does seem to be somewhat of a code of conduct for the believer. Um, the believer within the local church and to one another. Okay, we have, we're a family. Okay? We're a local church family and there's a way, a, a manner I guess I'll say, that God wants us to be with each other as we grow together and serve the Lord together and we need to understand what God expects. Because when it boils right down to it, it really doesn't matter what I expect or what you expect. It does matter what God expects, because ultimately one day, that's where we're going to be standing to give an account for our life, at the judgment seat of Christ. And opinion isn't going to matter, is it? I mean, we could be very popular and everybody loves us, and it's not going to weigh into our judgment on that day. We're not going to be judged for our sins, and praise God for that. But we are going to be judged for how we lived our life and what we did for him from the point that we got saved until that day. At the, we call it the Bema judgment seat because that particular word, that Greek word for judgment in 1 Corinthians is the word Bema. So it's Bema judgment seat, why they, they refer to it that way. But either way, at that judgment, and what Paul does in this chapter, he begins by speaking about the return of Christ in verses 1 through 11. That one day, and it could be today, and that would be fine with me, I don't know about the rest of you, I remember thinking a lot of times when I was younger that I'd like to get married and have kids, you know, and it's things I'd like to do. And you look back now and you think, why did I want kids? Why? Why did I? They don't leave. You don't go out into the world. Venture your way out there. No, I'm kidding. I, I've had great kids and a great family. They have two dogs now. Never wanted one. I did want kids, but I got to say, I'm not sure I ever really wanted a dog. I don't hate dogs. I just don't want one. That's all. They're a lot of work, you know. But now we have two. So the Lord has really blessed us in our lives and what we've done, what we've been through 15, 20 years in the ministry that God gave us. And maybe he'll open a door again one day, and that's where we'll be again. I don't know. But until then, it's my responsibility to serve him. I know he's coming back. And it could be today. And that would be fine. But until then, as Paul explains in verses 1 through 11, 
of that coming day. It is going to happen. Then he switches gears, so to speak, in verse 12, and starts to talk about us now. Because we can't live like none of this matters now waiting on that day, right? We have a responsibility before God now. What we do in light of that day coming. And that's where we're at in verses 12 through 22 that we're going to look at here um, with, with this. Now, what's interesting is in the first couple of um, verses here that I'm gonna, we're going to look at here in verse 12 and 13, Paul speaks of our code of conduct, I guess, our relationship to spiritual leaders or the pastor of, of our church. And none of the things that are mentioned there are commands that are given. But everything after that is an imperative verb or a command that we're given that we must do, okay? I always thought it was interesting. Why isn't verses 12 and 13 written that way? I, because God didn't want it written that way, I guess. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, but we'll look at, you know, kind of the wording there as we get into this. But when I was in the Marine Corps, um, we had, you know, you, you get the boot camp and you're given the Marine Corps handbook. And by the time that 13 weeks is over, you can just about, if they say, turn, you know, to this topic, you know the page. I mean, you take this book and you pretty much memorize this thing, at least enough of it to know what you're supposed to do. And within that was how we were supposed to act and carry ourselves, even walk in a certain way. I mean, you're almost like you're marching everywhere you go. That is what they, you had a code of conduct, in uniform or out, didn't matter. You were a Marine, you were expected to conduct yourself in a certain way. As a Christian, it's even more so than that. When I'm here or when I'm at work, I should be me. I should be the same person, right? I, that's what the Bible wants me to be. I don't be something here that I'm not there. I don't talk here different than I talk at work, okay? I, I insult everybody. You know, I just, I, I have a good time with myself. But I, my character shouldn't change. Because I'm expected to behave a certain way. When I get within the church, God wants me to relate in a certain way with other believers. We are here to help each other through this walk. God has brought us together. And you know what's fun sometimes is as church has gatherings and different things that churches do, when you get to know people and say their story, okay? Some people are born and raised, and that's where they always are. Some people God brings almost on a journey to get them where they are. But at the end of the day, we're all here right now together. Correct? And if we believe that God has ordained and authored my life and the steps of it, which I do, then I'm here, not by accident. This is where God wants me to be right now. So within this church family, God has me here for a purpose. And if I follow the teachings of his word and in this passage, I'll fulfill that purpose instead of failing to fulfill that purpose. And I need to be used in that way. All of my kids, we've had six kids, they're all different in a lot of ways, and they're all the same in a lot of ways. But there are areas where some are better than others, and they can help the other. I mean, there are, there are just some things that people are good at that other people aren't. The same is true in the Christian walk, and it's with Scripture and with our faith. Some are just better at things than others. And they can be used to help those who are, as we'll see here in a little bit, the weaker 
that need that support. They're not inferior. They're just not there yet. It's our job to help them get there. It's, it's more than just saying hi to somebody. We really need to do, I say, the church needs to do better amongst itself. And I don't mean when I say better like we're failing here, okay? I'm speaking of the church period and all of Christendom, okay? Every local church, every Bible-believing local church in the world needs to do a better job of supporting each other and helping each other grow in the Lord. That's what we're here for. That's what God wants. And we're going to look at this right here in verses 12 through 22. The first area that Paul, I divided it in three areas because it's always three points to make a good sermon, okay? Three points. I don't have a poem, so I lose five points on my poem. But either way, three areas here. And the first one is that responsibility towards spiritual leaders. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. So here, the first thing that Paul lays out here, he says, and we beseech you, brethren. That word beseech is almost like a begging. It's not a command. But Paul is like begging the Thessalonians and you and I today to have this mindset. To do this. Since I've gotten out of the ministry... Uh, and maybe it was that way while I was in, but you kind of, you look at things a little different when you're actually the pastor than you do when you're not, and you're kind of looking at things. Um, I will say, I think that in the churches that I've been in and, and been around and talking to pastors, we've lost a certain level of respect for the position. And that's what is, that God is getting at in this, these two verses. The position of the pastor, Okay. That needs to be something that we as Christians hold in a high regard. It's a God-given calling on somebody's life. And he didn't call me to do it. And now that I'm on the... I mean, I sent out resumes. <laughs> I was looking for a church, and I got no calls. And, you know, not to be overly humble, I guess, or, or not be real, but at the end of the day, God didn't want me in a ministry right now. So while I was before, I'm not now. I haven't done anything to disqualify myself. I just, God just hasn't opened that door. So when I'm sitting under somebody, and I've sat under three different guys now, as who were the pastor and I'm not, it's not my job to critique how I would be doing this if I was here, although that's probably the hardest thing for somebody who's been in, those, been in that position and now isn't. The biggest battle is that. But it's my job to hold that person in high regard because God has called them to that position and appointed them there. We voted them in, but God put that calling on their life and gave them that ministry and brought Pastor Miller here, brought Pastor Hess was here before him, and Brother Darrell filled in and, and, and that gap between and did a great work for us. But it's our job to hold them in a high regard. A high regard would be a respect for what God has given them to do. Look what he says here. To know them which labor among you. That word know just simply means give them their due of who they are and what God has called them to do. They're the spiritual leader. They're the pastor. I'm not. Now, that, means if, that doesn't mean that if somebody comes to me, a Christian, 
and it wants to talk to me about something going on in their life, I can't talk to them, right? I mean, you can talk to somebody if they come to you. What, I mean, we don't have to refer everything to pastor's door necessarily. Now, we should probably use some judgment depending on what they want to talk about. But either way, we can be a help to one another in, in that way. But give them their due. Give them that, that title that God has called them to do. Remember what Paul told Timothy when he said, let no man despise thy youth. You can't stop anybody from despising your youth, but don't let it affect you that they do that. That's what Paul was telling Timothy. They might do it, but don't you let it govern you. Don't you let it control you. If they do, just do what you're supposed to do. And then he went on to tell him, be instant in season, out of season, and all that. Preach the word, right? Just do the work. It's our job to hold them in that, to, to just give them their due and hold them in that regard, which labor among you. It's not just the pastor's job. Whether you come to the organized visitation or whether you don't, you cross the paths of people every single day that you and I know we could invite to church. Right? There's people I work with, Easter and Christmas are probably two easiest days to get somebody to come to church who may not ever normally come. But there's something about Easter and Christmas, at least there always used to be, about Easter and Christmas that makes people think they probably ought to go to church. And you might get them there that day. You might invite them. They might come. They might get saved. And they might become a regular. Right? But, but there is somebody. There's always somebody in our life that we can be focusing our, our attention on in that way. They labor among us and are over you. God has given them that position. And admonish you. And the idea of this admonishing you, it's a gentle um, push to do what's right, is the idea. They just want you to do what's right. Every pastor's heart. And I, I never wanted to be called preacher. I don't consider myself that much of a preacher, if <laughs> you want the truth. But I like to be called pastor. Because it should be about their heart. And wanting to reach their life for their good. Not, not my pride. This is for their good. I want them to attain this for their own good. And admonishing someone is that gentle push in the direction they need to go. Okay? 1 Peter 5 tells the pastor, um, puts, puts a parameter on, turn there, 1 Peter 5, it puts a, um, a fence around, I guess I'll say, the mindset of the man in that office. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. There, there's a, a reason to do it, and reasons that should not be the reason to do it. Okay? Not to be a czar, not to be in it for the money, to see how much, you know, how much money you can make or whatever. I mean, that's probably the last profession you want if you want to make money in your life. Not that pa some pastors don't necessarily make a bad living, I guess, but most of them, I know a lot of pastors that are working a, a side job to make ends meet. Okay? It's not the most lucrative calling in the world. 
But either way, you don't do it for that. You don't do it for the gain in that way. And you don't do it to rule over people or to have that czar mentality. Okay, so there's a parameter there that God has put on that, on that man and his motivation for what he's doing. But for you and I, our job is simply hold them in that high regard for who they are. Respect the office. Notice that God, and look what God says here, because it's not the person that we do it, and there's a, there's a qualifier. And to esteem them very highly, so that's a, a little bit, I'll say even a little higher in the writing there, the emphasis of, than respect. Esteeming them very highly in love. That's the qualifier. In love. What, is, what does the Bible say love does? Love does what? Love hides what? A multitude of sins, doesn't it? False. Not perfect. Right? There's no pastor out there that's perfect. But if we, if we esteem them in love, we realize they're not perfect. They're not going to do everything right. They're not going to get it right all the time. There are going to be times when they make a decision that may not have been the decision to make. Okay? Maybe that, that was a bad decision. They went on the best information they had. And I always try to get my deacons to make the decisions. So I can just blame them. Well, you want to do it. I was against it all along, you know. But I'm kidding, but still. Um, they're not perfect. They're, they're, they're not going to handle every situation the way it ought to be handled. They're just not, no matter who they are. But it's still in love, I hold them in a high regard and realize I'm no more perfect than they are. And at the end of the day, God called them, not me. So I need to fulfill my role and hold them with that high regard and do what I can to help them in love for their work's sake. The responsibility that a pastor has is an awesome responsibility. I am a supervisor, so to speak, at work on second shift when I'm on second shift. When I'm on day shift, I'm a nobody. But either way, on second shift, I get to be the supervisor. And, but I'm only supervising people for eight hours, right, to get a job done and go home and do the same thing tomorrow. A pastor is, it's souls that we're after. A pastor is trying to capture souls and, and guide lives and hearts towards God and towards a life that would bring glory to God. A much bigger responsibility than being a supervisor in a corn facility when it comes right down to it. Their work is an awesome work. And one that is often thankless. I mean, stop and think about this. I told, I, when I preached this before, I made the comment that they have the impossible task of making every decision, that they, uh, the impossible task of every decision they make has to make everybody happy. Every decision they make, everybody has to love it. <laughs> Everybody has to be happy, and we, we know that's not going to happen, right? I mean, I've got six kids, and I guarantee you my, my wife can sit down something simple and make a menu out for the week, and somewhere along the line, somebody's not going to like what we're having for dinner one night. I don't usually have that problem. I just eat whatever. I, I, that's one of my faults. I, I like food. But there's something somebody doesn't like. But can you imagine having the responsibility to make whatever, to, and somebody's just, there's always somebody's not going to like it. Well, we shouldn't have done it at 10 o'clock. We should have done it at 9. Seriously? But there will be. 
It's something that you and I need to take into consideration because we don't think about it much. I don't think about it even though I've been there. And hold them in a high regard for the work that they have to do. And do it in love. Because if we do it in love, we'll avoid, one, the disrespect to the position, and two, the misplaced respect to the person. And by that, I just simply mean like a hero worship. I know a church right now that um, the pastor is a good friend of mine. He's resigned and moving on in the ministry. And he's been there, I don't know how many years, 25 years, I think it is, or more, that he's been there. And in talking to him a little bit, he feels like there are some people that are just going to fold up and move on somewhere else. That not right that if, if we hold them in a high regard and love for their work's sake then that's not going to happen whether they come or go that's just that's not going to be I'm, I'm not here because they're here i'm not leaving because they leave i'm here because god called me here and this happens to for us it happens to be pastor miller now maybe in five years three years whatever maybe it won't be It'll be someone else. Well, I plan on still being here unless I die. I mean, I don't plan on moving, but i got to be honest with you, I didn't plan on moving from Colorado to Illinois and Illinois back to Nebraska. Not at the time, but here I am. <laughs> so I have no idea what God's going to do, but I don't plan on leaving or staying. The hero worship is not what God wants. And God doesn't want a bunch of people to just sit around not caring. Whatever you want to do, fine. That's not right either, Okay. You don't have to agree with everything. I don't have to agree with everything. But we still have to hold in a high regard and respect them and try to um, live with a certain amount of grace in our heart that maybe we won't agree. How many of you have been married like five years? A year? Not even a year. You ever disagreed on anything yet? I'm putting you two on the spot. No. Lying in church. This close to the front. <laughs> wow. Well, you're close to the altar later when you want to come make a confession. But you're not going to get a divorce over disagreeing, right? I'm not going to throw it all away because we don't, we don't agree on this. My wife wanted a second dog. I didn't want a second dog. I'm not going to divorce her over a second dog. I'm just not going to do anything with the dog. Show her. I'm not cleaning up after the dog. I'm not playing with the dog. I'm not petting the dog. At least not when anybody can see me. Pet the dog this afternoon when everybody left the house. Play with her a little bit. Pet her and then they all, I hear the car go pull up. I'm not going to play with this dog. Okay, I've got I to have your principles. I'm not going to divorce when we don't agree. Why would I, if I disagree, I mean it's not biblical, then why are people so quick to just leave where God had put them? You know? I mean, we've got to be careful. So anyway, this is what God wants us to do um, towards the spiritual leaders. And then in our conduct towards one another, which is where he spends really a great deal of his time. And everything from this point forward is a command. So we know that means we have to do it, right? An imperative verb, we've got to do it. The interesting thing is, even though the first two verses are not any commands given, they're all written in the same tense. And by that I mean the tense in, the, in, that, in that language, of the Greek language, 
indicates an importance in the word. And in that tense, it's something that is continuous. Every single day we do this. All of these commands are written in that same tense. Every day, continuously, this should be who we are in every moment. Okay? Now, we're going to fail. We're, we're not going to live up to it all the time. We know that. But when we don't, then we just have to own it, confess it, and move on. And go right back to doing what we know we're supposed to do. Okay? Because none of us are perfect. We're, gonna not, we're not going to do it right all the time. But anyway, towards fellow believers, and really at the end of verse 13 where he says, and be at peace among yourselves is the first command. Be at peace among yourselves. Maintain peace among yourselves. The devil loves ripples and undercurrent. Keeping everything out of balance a little bit. The rock in the boat, stir in the pot. All those analogies that we like to use. The devil likes that. Because then that keeps everybody off focus of where they ought to be. And where our eyes ought to be. And what we ought to be doing. Because as the boat is rocking and the pot is being stirred, we're focusing on the commotion that that's making rather than on the cross and where our goal ought to be. We can't stop some of that, but we cannot feed it. It doesn't always need our attention. Maybe sometimes all it needs is a rebuke to just stop. Knock it off. It's hurting the cause of Christ. Don't do it. It doesn't look good to those out there. And I've, I've never worked with anybody in my life who expected me to be perfect. But they did expect me to be real. And I've worked around some guys that when I've blown it, and I've apologized to them, have looked at me and said, wow. I've never, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys that claim to be Christian do the same thing, and none of them have ever apologized. I'm not speaking for them. I know what I need to do here. I need to own it, and I need to apologize for acting or saying or whatever that I did and move on with it. They don't expect me to be perfect, but I need to be real. They know how I'm supposed to act, and they don't even come to church. But they got a pretty good idea of what we're supposed to be about, right? So when a church has all that going on and all that commotion going on, and they find out about it, because they will, that's just the way the devil's going to work, They'll find out about it. It hurts the cause of Christ. And everything we ought to do ought to be to protect the cause of Christ. So be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, in verse 14, warn them that are unruly. So here we need to warn them to um, give a reproach to them who are unruly or those who are living outside of the given order of God's word that God wants us to live by. Not those that you stumble, you mess up, whatever. You've done something you shouldn't have done, okay? And you know it, and you need to stop. It's not every time somebody messes up, we're there to pounce on them. But somebody whose life is being lived in a character that is outside of what the word of God says it ought to be. They're unruly. They don't have any control over themselves. We need to warn them. Listen, the judgment's coming. It's closer today than it was yesterday. And you're going to stand before a holy God and not offer any excuses 
We can offer excuses here to each other, but when we stand before God, folks, we're not going to be doing that. Not doing that at all. So we need to warn them that are unruly. It's not necessarily those are just um, habitually immoral, I'll say, but it's someone who has an irresponsible attitude to the obligation of God's word. We need to warn them. It's our job as fellow believers to warn those in amongst our family that they're hurting themselves and the cause of Christ. Remember what Nathan told David when he confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba and all that went on there? And, and, and maybe the most condemning thing that he said to David was that you've given the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme. To me, that's the most condemning thing that he said in all of that. Not thou art the man, and whether he stuck his finger in David's face or not, as it makes for a great sermon. But whether or not he really did that, I don't know. But what he just was used of God, and it convicted David, and David knew he was wrong. But the biggest reproach of that, you've given the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme. That's something we can't do. Nor should we want to let anybody else do it. So it's our job to help them and to warn them that they are um, doing that. And then we're also supposed to, in verse 14, comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort here means to encourage them. Don't pity. Nobody needs pity. I don't need pity. You don't need pity. Nobody needs to feel sorry for each other. Whatever's going on in our life is either God-ordained as a trial or God-ordained as judgment for sin. So I don't need pity if I'm going through a hard time. I need somebody to encourage me. That's what the word comfort is. The God of all comfort in the book of 2 Corinthians. The God of all encouragement. The God of all exhortation. And then it tells us in that passage, if you read through those first six or seven verses, that then when we go through that and we're comforted by somebody, then we in turn can comfort someone else when they're in trouble and distress. We help each other along that way, and we need to comfort or encourage the feeble-minded. Who are the feeble-minded? These are those that are just of little faith. They're not less important. Their faith just isn't there yet. And they can come through a trial. Maybe they lose their job. Something like that happens, and it, it really rocks their world to the point that their faith just doesn't have the root yet to grab a hold of the Word of God, and no matter how long this takes, and no matter what we go through, we're not leaving God. Some of us have gotten to a point in our life where we could lose a job. I remember when, we, when, when everything kind of happened like it did in Colorado, and we were out, <laughs> and I had no job, no place to live, and nothing. I had no idea where I was going. I took my wife, and my five kids, one was married and out of the house, my favorite child, by the way, because um, <laughs> I have grandkids, but, and because he's out of the house. But, no, I'm kidding. I've got two out of the house now. But either way, I took my five kids and a dog, and we moved back to Illinois with my parents. It's not exactly where I saw myself at 50 years old. I didn't. I did not see myself there, but I knew this. And my wife and I talk, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what, where we're going to end up, how this is all going to play out. 
what I'm going to do for work. But I, we're not going to blame God, and we're not going to quit. We're going to find a church, and we're just going to go, and we're going to serve. If they'll let us serve, we're going to serve. We'll do whatever we can. And we did. And we found a job, and blah, 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 and things played out, and we're back in Nebraska. Um, is it still the good life, or is it it's not for everyone? What's the motto now? Wasn't it going to be it's not for everyone? But it's not very appealing. <laughs> but whatever. It ain't for everyone. And you know what? Everyone ain't welcome either. Go live in Kansas. You know? Kansas will take you. We want certain people in Nebraska, right? But either way, um, we're not going to quit on God. That's just where we are in our faith. No matter how long it takes, no matter what we go through, we're going to stay the course. We're not going to be perfect at it, but we're going to. We're going to do this. Some aren't there. Their faith isn't that strong yet. It's you and I who are not perfect and we're not super Christians by any stretch of the imagination. But we know that we're not going to stop. We know the truths of God's word. We've trusted in them before and we've seen God answer them. And we're going to encourage them to let God work in their life the same way. Because he will. It's through those trials, we've learned that, that through those trials that we've seen God work that our faith gets stronger. It's not when everything is going good. It, everybody can serve God when life is great and, and we have no problems, right? No matter how short those times are, we do have moments like that, times in our life. That's not when our faith grows, though. That's when we're in danger of drifting from God because in our human nature, we don't need him. And we tend to use God sometimes as a fire escape or as a lifeboat, when now I got trouble, I go pray. My prayer life is never stronger than when I have trouble. Right? But we've been there and we want them to see God answer. So we comfort them or we encourage them. And then he goes on and he says, um, comforting or warn the unruly, comfort the feeble minded, and also in verse 14, support the weak. Now the weak are those whose faith isn't quite as strong. They're not maybe the feeble-minded, but they say they have the, the gusto of the faith to trust God, but not necessarily the, um, I don't want to say the, the, the faculty, but the, the realistic approach that you still can't jump off the top of a 10-story building and think God's going to take care of me because God can do everything, right? A reckless kind of faith. The weak, they're the easy prey. What's the Bible tell us in the book of um, 1 Peter? That Satan, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He's walking around the herd, and he's looking for the one who's the easiest target. That's who the weak are. They don't set up the guidelines in their life. They don't have the parameters that only allow themselves to go so far. They don't, they don't um, keep themselves strengthened as they ought to in God's word and prayer every day. They're the weak. And it's up to you and I to support them, prop them up. When we, we help them. <laughs> Stay in it. Stay on it. Don't give up your Bible reading and your prayer. Stay close to God. Keep those guards up. Because the devil is real and he's looking right now for somebody to attack. And we don't want them to go under. We don't want their life to be a wreck. We, we, we want to help them and support and hold them up. That's our job to do. And patient, if I lack anything, and I, if I'm at, I think I'm, maybe sometimes I'm too honest, but either way, be patient toward all men. Not exactly my strong suit. 
I can get pretty annoyed and fed up. I'd fire everybody at work if they gave me the authority. There are days when I just go home. I don't even want you here. You're, you're useless. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some people that they have no work ethic. They have no sense of work ethic. They think they're there to get a paycheck and they can just be on their phone the whole time. And me, patient toward all men, and just within it, it, it's all men, okay? And I have patience starts to dwindle real quick. I, I really struggle in this one, and even within the church, I struggle amongst Christians with being patient. I, I bite my tongue a lot. I, there's a lot of times I'm thankful that I'm, my wife is who she is, and she's like, don't say it. Don't say a word. Or she'll tug, and I can feel this. Like, yeah, time to go. Because the mouth is getting ready to say something that doesn't need to be said. <laughs> it's not going to help anything. We've got to learn to be patient. Everybody's a work in progress, right? Aren't they? We all have rough edges, right? Sure we do. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. And we're never going to arrive. We don't have all our ducks in a row. We don't. And we need to be patient toward all men. We need to be long-suffering. People fail. And people will fail you and me. They'll give their word and break their word. We'll think they're a friend, and they are a friend, but they'll, they'll do something that will destroy that bond. And we've got to be long-suffering. Doesn't mean we have to trust them right away with something, but we've got to be long-suffering. God's not done with them yet. And until God takes them home, we can't be done with them either. Or takes me home. We have to learn to be patient with each other. Every step of the way. Patient toward all men. Verse 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So within the church and without the church, don't render evil for evil. Getting even is not biblical. Okay, I, our kids growing up, and I can you know remember instances where one did one thing to one, so this one did that. And notoriously, the retaliator, a lot of times, was could be Joel, who lives down in Hastings, you've seen him a few times, or one of our others that I won't, I won't mention, that, you know, because that one might be here. <clears throat> and she wouldn't like that. But when they were little, they were the ones that wouldn't let anybody get anything over them. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it, you want to bet? And, you know, I mean, it was almost rendering evil for evil. They did, this one did something to them, they're going to do something to them. And usually what they do in retaliation is a little worse than what they did to them. And you get to teach this principle that you can't go through life doing that. Right? You just can't. You can't render evil for evil. Because they've gossiped about you. Don't gossip about them. Even if you know it's true. It doesn't mean it's not gossip. Right? It's still hurtful. It was in its design to destroy. Makes it gossipy. Whether it's true or not. And don't do that. Don't act in that way. Towards anybody. Even outside the church. Don't do that. But ever follow. And that word follow is, is the same word that Paul used when he said he, he pressed toward the mark. 
Keep your eyes on what, what, follow that. Let that be your focus. And that's what you follow. Follow that which is good. Inherently good. Which would be biblical. Thanks. Follow that which is good. Don't fall into that mindset that, of that, oh yeah, I can, you know, mentality. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Somewhat self-explanatory, but still, rejoice evermore. No matter what, find reasons to rejoice. At the end of the day, no matter what happens to me here, and I need to hurry up because it's almost seven, it's like one minute till. Um, but um, rejoice evermore. Always rejoice. Good times are bad. Rejoice. At the end of the day, if this is the worst, whatever happens to me here is the worst I'm ever going to know. As a child of God, I'm going to heaven. The best is yet to come. There are people that you and I know this is the best that they're ever going to know. Their eternity is in hell. So I can find reason to rejoice when I know this is the worst I'm ever going to know it. Whatever I get here. Nothing else will be, will, heaven will never be this. I can't even begin to think of what it's going to be there. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Always and constantly in an attitude of prayer. And there's so much that we can pray for. Wisdom and understanding. Power. Inner strength. A Christ-centered life. Understanding more about God's love. I mean, you can make a list of things that we could be in prayer about all the time. And for someone like me, the more time I'd spend in prayer, probably the less time I'd have to worry about what I might say in a certain situation. If my prayer life is truly not a five-minute devotional, eat my toast and out the door, but really a time to get a hold of God, it would help govern what I might do and say in the course of that day. And then keeping that attitude of prayer with me all day long. Despise not prophesying. Now, really, in this particular verse, I don't believe, so just take it for what it's worth, okay? But myself, I didn't teach the gift of prophecy. I think it's gone over, okay? I think, I, you know, you say, well, I think it's expounding on the Word of God, and that's fine. I ain't going to argue with you about it. Say, we'll get to heaven and find out. We'll probably get to heaven and not care, okay? But whatever. We'll say we'll get to heaven and find out about it. But I, that's just, so this verse in particular, even though it was around and alive and well then, because God hadn't given the complete Scripture to man yet. So God did still deal with man this way in these prophesying. But for you and I, we could say the Word of God, when it's being preached and taught, if it's not being mistreated and misused, then we need to take it for what it is. Whether it hurts or makes me feel good. Because the Word of God's going to do both. There are people that can sit in a message, hear a message, and are encouraged. God has strengthened them that, through that message and other people who would just cut them up one side and down the other. That's the Word of God, Right? That's not, that shouldn't be the aim of the preacher. It's not my job. My job is just to tell you what it says. And then you have to do with it whatever God works in your heart to do with it. But don't despise that. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Proving all things. Doesn't mean to be overly critical. Okay? But we do need to try the spirits, as the Bible says. When you, when you hear a message like tonight, if you've taken notes, go home. Take the word of God and see whether or not it lines up. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think any pastor or preacher should have a problem with that. Paul commended the Bereans for doing that. Right? 
Because they heard those things, and then they went and sought the Scripture to see if those things were true. That's the way every Christian ought to be. One, it'll drive it home more if we do that. And, and take those things and study the Word of God. Prove them. Because when you prove them and find out they're true, it just drives it that much more into you and into me. I take notes for that reason. One, it helps me remember. And two, I can look back over it, and I can even make it a part of my devotion. And, and searching things out and lining it up with Scripture in my life. And, and I, I think it's a great thing to do. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. There again, grab a hold of what's good, inherently good, the Word of God, and, and things that are of the nature of God, and don't let it go for anything. Hold on to it like your life depends on it. We live in a world that is just filthy. Evil is so prevalent. You can't hardly do anything and not be exposed to evil of some sort. So grab hold of what's good and don't let go. Don't let go. And then abstain from all appearance of evil. Give caution. If it looks like it, if it could be misread into evil, then don't do it. As far as your conscience will allow you. Kind of like the meat offered idols. Paul didn't say it was wrong to eat meat offered idols. He said if you can do it, do it. And if you can't, don't. But don't either one of you make the other one do what you can or can't do. That's wrong. So for some it was an appearance of evil. That, that meat had been offered to an idol. How do you eat that meat now? But that was the cheapest meat in the market. Some people couldn't afford the other meat. So they were eating that meat. Not because they wanted the idol worship. Because they could afford it. That's all. So it, if it's an appearance of evil in your heart, if you think it could be construed that way, don't do it. And just stay away from it. And then you avoid the conflict that that can bring. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to preach tonight.